This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The city of Chattanooga is getting ready to vote for a new mayor and city council. Early voting will begin February 10th and end on February 25th. The deadline to request an absentee ballot is February 23rd. Election day is March 2nd. Please visit the Hamilton County Election Commission website for more details. I'm here with Dennis Clark. He is running for city council in District 5. And Dennis, if you could just tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and about the district that you're running in. Sure. So uh, thank you for having me and for giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience. I am Dennis Clark, a city council candidate for District 5, um, born and raised uh, in a community that is, excuse me, that um, includes communities like Washington Hills, Lake Hills, Bonnie Oaks. Um, in the Woodmore communities. And those are pretty much areas like Highway 58 and uh, Northmore Road and Tally Road are just to name a few of our boundaries. Uh, we're majorly a predominantly African-American community, uh, moderate income. Uh, most of our challenges include um, small business development along some of our biggest commercial corridors, which include Brainerd Road Highway 58, affordable housing is becoming an issue in our community. Uh, and just, of course, just public safety. We have a lot of property theft um, in our communities. So um, running, basically, I'm going to use my experience. I'm a CEO. I own a transportation company. Um, I also run a nonprofit called the Chattanooga Urban Policy Institute. Um, I'm going to take those experiences and those relationships I've built over the years um, working in the nonprofit community and try to create more opportunities for people in my district. Great. Um, and if I guess we'll just dive right into the, the more policy oriented questions. So, so I wanna start out by talking about the budget. Um, and so right now, the way things work is that the mayor leads the budget writing process. He submits the budget to the city council and then they approve it or amend it or reject it. They have that power to amend or reject the budget. Currently, the current administration has like a six month process for that budget writing uh, for community input meetings and all these grant writing processes. And so my question is that in, in the past, it seems like the, the city council has kind of deferred to that process, that public input process, and usually hasn't given too much um, feedback into the budget. They usually either pass it or they don't. Uh, and it's, it's almost a rubber stamp. So, so my first question for you is, do you think the city council should exercise more of that authority to amend or reject the budget? And you know, do you think the process is, is good for the city and, that, and how do you think the city council can, can change that? Yeah, so um, I do believe we have to change our budgeting process. You know, right now it's called budgeting for outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that it's not, uh, garnering the type of outcomes we need for some of our most vulnerable communities, especially our communities of color. Um, I think we get left out of those conversations. And when we get left out of those conversations, we get left out of the budget. You know what I mean? So um, I hope I will support the mayor in getting rid of that budgeting for outcomes process. Um, I don't think it's very inclusive and I don't think it has worked. 
Um, we also have this notion that the we have a we're supposed to have a strong mayor and weak council. Um, I have no clue where that is written, <laughs> um, but people say it a lot. Like it's like in Rosetta Stone somewhere. I don't know, but I think it should be the complete opposite. We have to remember that the the mayor's purpose of 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 being elected is just as he's an administrator. He's a CEO. Um, and he's to make sure that all of the auxiliaries from the fire department to public works to, to the police department are operating properly. And when it comes to policy, um, I think a lot of that should come from council, um, meaning that we shouldn't be presented a budget. You know, we should be involved in a budget uh, before it's presented. Oftentimes the mayor spends six months doing, you know, the listening tour, you know what I'm saying? Um, and after six months, and I tell people, I say, you do, you guys do realize that that budget is already done before <laughs> they go on tour, right? Um, because there's just not, you know, it's only so much money. It doesn't take six months to figure out what to allocate millions of dollars. You know, it's just, it's not like we've got billions um, in the city's coffers. And so I hope that we will balance the power of the council. Uh, where it's a strong council and a collaborative mayor's office. Mm -hmm. uh, that is what we've been lacking in that budgetary process. I think that if city council members are more involved, A, I'm gonna make sure that organizations who feel left out are going to be involved. And I think what better way to make sure they're involved than to channel that civic engagement through the people who elected the council members and the mayor, of course, but, um, so in short, um, I think we need to get rid of the budget, the budgeting for outcomes process. And I think we need to involve the council and select groups of the community um, well in advance and not mm -hmm. after they've done a six month listening tour to the, only to present to us what they had already planned in the first place. And then that leads us into another question. And you, you touched on this in your opening statement, public safety. Mm -hmm. A lot of people's first Kind of real run-in with the budget process especially people more of my age range more of uh, my age group police saw the issue this summer with the police around the black lives matter protests and we saw 200 people sign up to talk about the city council and talk about the fact that 70 million dollars of a 240 million dollar budget is going to the police department and there are a lot of different arguments on you know some people think the police need more funding so that we can have better training, better policies, better staff. Some people think we need to uh, divest and reinvest. There's a whole slew of options. So I'm just wondering, where do you stand on police and how do you think we can make Chattanoogans all feel safe? Oh my God, this is like a really serious question <laughs> because um, we spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know, I think I think I couldn't I didn't catch the first figure, but I think our overall budget for the city is 270. Did you say 240 or 270? Off the top of my head, it's 240, but it could be 270. I, I don't. And I, and I could be wrong. I tell people I am not. I know it's. Yeah, I know it's close to that, and I think the and I do know that the police budget is about 70 million dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and the reason why I said I almost think that half of our police budget or half of our budget for the city goes towards the police. Is that correct or? It sits in like the 20 to 25% range goes to the okay, police. Gotcha. And then another 
uh, another probably 15% goes to fire. So all the, all told, I think around 40% goes to public safety is what's, gotcha. okay. that's the line item. That's the line item. Okay. Um, I definitely think that where you spend a lot of money um, is an indicator that we need to evaluate a is that where we're supposed to be spending a lot of money? And if we're spending a lot of money on crime and police, that tells us that we have a policing and crime issue because what happens is they, they throw money at problems. They think money solves everything and it doesn't because the police budget makes up a majority of our budget, but yet it's like majority of our headaches. Like where, you know, the protesting, which is valid. You know, I'm having issues with the police department my family has had issues with the police department uh, with police violence. And it's just one of those things where we've got to figure out how the police department can be more effective. So where it doesn't cost that much money, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, why is this costing so much money to keep our people safe? And then we don't feel safer. And because of that, I'm going to be honest with you. I think we, we once you, I, I've learned once you take away money, people start uh, being better stewards of the money and, Sure enough, you start taking away that money, I think they'll work harder, be a more effective and efficient department, um, and maybe do less crime towards the community. And I think we need to put it in that framework where police officers commit crimes. Isn't that crazy to say that? Mm -hmm. Police officers commit crimes all the time, and the taxpayers pay for it. We have to defund that. And I want to be very clear in that, what I just said, because I don't believe in defunding the police department. I'm like, listen, I believe we need an enforcement body. You have to have an enforcement body. You know, you can't get rid of a budget. But I think people take the word defund and think it's like get rid of the budget. That's not what that means. And so I want to put this in context. When I say defund, we cannot continue to fund police officers and departments who break the law. That's dumb. That's not a being a good steward of public tax dollars that you and I pay. And so, yes, I want to divert fund funding from the police department and put it back into programs that help people be better citizens because we've created, a, there's a system, systemic racism that creates poverty that goes directly into crime in the first place. And so we've created a system to where we have to need more police officers and so it becomes this ecosystem of we created a system that we're going to pay for a system and no one's helping the people in the system stay out of the system. And so that's why we have to divert funding uh, from the police department and put it into more social programs, because I think once we invest in people, we are we are essentially investing into the police department because they'll be, people will be committing less crimes, invest in people. You invest in people, you save money. And I don't understand why people don't understand that. And so in short, and to bring it back full circle, I, I do believe, and I'm kind of iffy about the word defunding because I know there's some emotional connotations. Yeah, there's a lot of language issues around lot of this language. topic that yeah. gets used, yeah. It gets used. And so we just have to be strategic in a downsizing a budget that honestly might be too big um, and not giving us the outcomes we need. And that's for any department. Hell, you know, that's for um, Department of Economic Development. They get a lot of money. Uh, that's for public works. You know, 
we need to be doing this in every department where they have big budgets and we're like, okay, what are y'all doing with this money? And if we're not getting any outcomes. And so I do believe we need to uh, put more money in investing into communities and to more people. And that's when I'm a city councilman, that's the budget that I will support. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to another topic that some people relate this back to the budget. There's, there's definitely other ways to address this issue, but COVID has had a big impact in our city in the past few months. And we're, we're finally starting to see a downswing. Things are starting to get better, but there's a big economic impact looming on the horizon with struggling small businesses, people losing their jobs or having their hours cut, uh, people who are now housing insecure because of those issues. So I'm wondering, what do you think the city council can do to mitigate the economic impacts of COVID? Um, one of the things that we can do, um, cause there's not, a, you know, there's not a lot we can do as city government, you know, some of the stuff, you know, and I tell people, again, it's a civics lesson that come, that can only be accomplished at the state and federal levels, because that's where the city gets a lot of their funding. You know, currently we get our, our COVID relief dollars for economic development and for rent and u- utility assistance. That money trickles down from federal government to the state. And, it, and it's distributed to the cities and we have to apply for that. Um, I think one of the things that we can continue to do in the city is really uh, enact measures to a slow the spread of COVID um, and to be a little bit more aggressive and making sure that, yeah, there's, a, there's an economic crisis happening as a result of COVID, but what are we doing to slow the spread? So I think that's one thing that we can do practically. Uh, but then secondly, um, we had to lobby our state and federal government to make sure that the stimulus packet that they're there that we hope that they were approved which i think they approved today i can't remember um but it includes state and local funding uh that we can use to help people pay rent uh which we currently already do we have the lie program that's helping people with utilities but when it comes to employer this is the key right here the city cannot do anything about employers who lay people off. Um, That is a state issue. And so if that happens where your employer, which is located inside the city, let's say if you worked at Volkswagen or the chicken plant, they lay you off, hey, you need to file for unemployment because that is a state issue. But then if you become economically impacted and cannot pay your rent and you cannot pay your electricity bill and you need food, then the city can come in right. with social programs. And that's what that's what we can do within our purview. And that's what I'll continue to support. Um, and those dollars are current. We do have funding from state and federal government to help us do that in the city currently. And then moving on, uh, you did talk a little bit about affordable housing in your opening statement. And I, I wanna kind of talk about development more broadly and, and affordable housing will kind of tie into this. Um, a lot of people that I talk to as part of this podcast are, are worried about development. Some of the things they're worried about are, you know, traffic generation, stormwater, sensitive landscapes, and uh, sewer, you know, all these things that, that the city regulates. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of disagreement on whether or not those regulations are sufficient to protect our city. Some people think they are overly uh, regulatory and that it's hurting the supply of housing. So I'm wondering, where do you stand on development, kind of broadly speaking, and and this is something, you know, the city council has a particularly 
influential role to play here because they're the ones writing these regulations and especially the zoning code. Yeah. Um, so just broadly speaking, what, what what's your take on development in the city? So, you know, I tell people de development in any capacity is good. Who doesn't like development, okay? The problem with development is people who do it um, carelessly or, or recklessly, um, and it's not equitable, meaning that people of color, people of low income, we get left out of development. And then that's when it becomes, to me, an equality issue. Um, I love building stuff. I want people to come in and pave streets and build buildings and, you know, jobs come here so people of color can get jobs. Um, what happens with development is that you have greed <laughs> and th that greed gets into city council and we don't, we don't hold them accountable when they come in and say, hey, we're going to build a building downtown. And then they say, well, okay, we're going to give you a tax break. We're like, wait a minute. We use that tax money to help people survive in our city. You know, a lot of that tax money goes into social programs. And so if you've got these big companies not paying, they want to develop Chattanooga, but they suck the resources dry, right? You know, because we are the tax. I tell people, the city, people need to understand people are the tax base, not the money. It's the people. And people fail to realize that. And so companies have to be more corporately responsible. And when they come in here, they have to understand that you have a council who says, listen, you're going to come in here where we, wel we welcome you, but we're not going to give you any breaks. Come here, do what you want to do with your own money. But if you're going to ask us for a break, um, we need you to support the people that are giving up, that is affording you that break. That's the problem. That's the equity issue. We also have an environmental justice issue because you got some companies who come in and they don't do what they uh, are supposed to do to support our infrastructure when it comes to sewer, uh, when it comes to water quality, um, when it comes to you know land use. You know, it's just so much stuff in development, and I think we've got to have really good community agreements. Uh, if you move into a zone uh, that's low to moderate income or that's been deemed um, uh, a development area about the census tract, you got to contribute something or don't build here. But at the same time, we need people to build here um, to develop so that will create jobs because it's all about jobs. It's all about the money. And I think it's a fine line. And I think what you just have to do, you just have to have the conversation um, and make sure we're recruiting the right companies because there, there are some companies who do it right. But then there are some companies who don't. And we just have to make sure that when it comes before city council, we have to take those cases by cases and really weigh um, if this is going to be beneficial for people, vulnerable people. Because right. you know, rich people are going to be okay regardless. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we always have to look out for vulnerable. It's always, always what? It's always the vulnerable people that get hurt. They always get hurt by something that doesn't even impact them. Mm -hmm. But and that's that's advocacy, and that's why we do our activism because it's always the vulnerable people, the seniors, the blacks, the gays, the you know. Those are the people we have to protect against big business, against development that comes in and displaces. That's the key. And that's what I'm against. If your development displaces, I'm not going to support you uh, in our tax base. With tax base. I want to dive in a little bit further into this issue and talk, you know, we've, we talked about development more sure. broadly, and I want to dive in now into affordable housing and gentrification is another issue that comes up a lot in my conversations with listeners. 
Um, we're seeing an influx of out-of-state investors, and we've already kind of talked about this, but out-of-state investors coming in, buying up property, raising property rates, and then you know, using the money and it's, it's going out of state. Um, and then much of this new housing that's being built is unaffordable for many Chattanoogans. And on top of that, you know, a lot of our public programs like public housing and Section 8 are, you know, there's not enough supply to meet the demand for those, those programs. So what do you think the city council can do to increase housing affordability and ensure that long-term Chattanoogans get to stay in the neighborhoods where they grew up, if that's what they want to do? Yeah, so I talk about, this is one of my uh, platform items that I talk about on the campaign trail, and it's a, it's addressing racial inequality or addressing the racial inequality and gentrification. Um, and I've been very frank that, you know, I don't want to be, a, we don't, we need to look at what they, what happened in Austin. And I'm so sorry, I have a cold. Uh, we need to look at what happened in East Nashville. And it was like, what happens when people come in and rape the land? Um, and, you know, in other cities like New York uh, and Atlanta have, have protected zones and they have laws that says, hey, you know, you got to have mixed use. You got to have affordable income here. You can't, you know, you can't charge as much rent in this area. You know, it, and, and that sounds radical to us to where we would have a, a, a resolution that says you can't charge this amount. Of, there's a rent cap. And people are like, well, you're telling, you know, private business how much i was like yes it's called regulation it's called and it's the good kind of regulation you know what i mean and so i am for those things that may seem radical and that may scare development but what happens is is that when you have these land use agreements when you have these rent caps um you also have to pair it with listen this is a developing area and i'm not only am i going to make sure you don't take advantage of that. But what are we doing simultaneously to build that area so the, if the people are there, they'll be able to afford to live where they want to live without having them displaced. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need affordable housing. And it's not because uh, people are just, they just want to live in you know, subpar communities. It's that because we're not doing our uh, job in, prote in protecting them and then helping them at the same time so we don't even have an affordable housing issue because we will be a community where everybody has access to opportunity. Because I tell people, you have a good paying job, you can live wherever the hell you want to live. You can live in East Brighton, you can live wherever you want to live. You can live in East Chat and you can compete with people who you think are coming into your community to gentrify. But until we create those opportunities for those people and raise them up right. to a competitive level, we got to protect them. Meaning protect them against people and national investors. You can't come in here and apply for this, you know, zone or buy a bottom property for Airbnb. And you, you come in here, buy this property for $15,000, put a little paint, put a little side on the grass and then boom, it's gentrifying. And then you want to charge $2,500 worth of rent and a house sitting in the middle of Orchard Knob and the house next door is only worth $12,000. That's how gentrification starts. And we have to regulate that. And I, I, and I hate that word sometimes because I believe in private property rights. I do. I got endorsed by the Chattanooga Realtors Association. And I believe in private property rights, but I also believe in equity. And I also believe in creating opportunities for all. So I hope that we can use development as an opportunity uh, to create more affordable uh, housing options. 
but we also have to figure out how do we raise people incomes level. I mean, we have firefighters who only make $10 and 47 cents an hour. Our own city workers can't afford to live in the areas they work in. You know what I mean? And so to me, you have to address these systemic issues. And a lot of it has to do with wage equity um, that's not happening in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. I want to move on. There's a there's a kind of tangential issue to development and affordable housing and all that. And that's that's transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a lot of good to have an affordable house if you can't get to where you need to go to, to work your job. Um, and so there's a lot of different competing issues on this in, as it relates to, you know, different forms of transportation, sidewalks, bike lanes, roads. What do we prioritize? What do we, you know, deprioritize? And so I'm just wondering, you know, how do you think the city council can handle our transportation regulations and make sure that all Chattanoogans have, you know, equitable access to good transportation so that they can get from their hopefully affordable house to their hopefully good job? Yeah. I, you know, and I'll be very short and brief with this because I know my answers can get a little long winded because I get so passionate about it. But I think um, uh, public transportation should be free. It's just like a public park. Do you get charged to go to a public park? No. And so, uh, you know, Carter and other organizations, they, you know, they already benefit from taxpayer dollars. So now why not continue to let the taxpayers benefit from their own money and ride the bus for free? I think we need to expand the hours. And I think we, and this is another concept people don't um, understand what public transportation. Sometimes I just want to get around in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, Cart, what Carter does is that like, if you, you get you get downtown and it'll take you through your neighborhood. But what if I just want to go on a little shuttle bus and, you know, I live in Woodmore and let's say if I didn't have a car, I could not, I would have to still walk to my neighborhood Walmart on Shallifer and I live yeah. off Tally. Yeah. If there were more inter, I don't even know what the terminology is, but you know, their system is, is broad. It's not interlocked inside communities. Mm-hmm. And so I like to make those transit systems the more community-based, like neighborhood-based, like right. more routes inside your neighborhood, uh, instead of just going from like downtown and it only goes down more road, not taking into account that off of Brainerd Road, there's several communities we don't have access to. And I think Carter does have a few programs, but I think we need to expand it. I think we need to make it free. And this is going to be another radical idea. I think it needs to be 24 hours. Hmm. Like, yeah, and that's, that's something, you know, that inner community transportation is something, you know, I struggle with. I'm, I'm actually pretty much down the street from you, uh, off Tally oh. Road, going to the same Shallowford Walmart. And I have that same issue. Like, if I don't have a car, which thank God I do, but if I, if I didn't, I couldn't get to the grocery store. So I get what you're saying there. Um, I want to move on a little bit and, and tackle kind of a new issue. Chattanooga is making a name for itself as an outdoor destination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been named number one city in the country by Outdoor Magazine twice now. And there's, there's a lot of good things that can come with that reputation. It presents a great opportunity for growth and tourism and, you know, we can really use that to sell our city, but it also comes with a lot of challenges in terms of how do we manage that growth? How do we make sure that all of our citizens have equal opportunity to use these outdoor resources? Sure. So what do you think the city council can do to, to manage this new reputation? You know, I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, I think of access to recreation, I think um, 
if it's being used as a tourist attraction, you know, you have to understand when tourists come here, uh, they spend money into our sales uh, base, our sales tax, we can collect sales tax. Um, and I think it's good when it comes to um, access to this, this is where it goes wrong. <laughs> we cannot just create things for other people from the outside to come in here to enjoy because we still have to pay for it when they leave. Um, and that's where we have to also make sure that um, our parks, you know, our people have equal access to um, entertainment venues. I remember there was an issue for local promoters who can't, because they've outsourced the uh, Tivoli Center, the Memorial Auditorium to Live Nation. You know, it's hard for local promoters to use our stuff. I don't know if you knew that or not, right? And so, so just to give you an example, it's just, it's just not with outdoors. Uh, we have to make sure that those people that are coming in to do festivals, people that are coming in to uh, take advantage of our outdoor spaces, that we're also uh, making sure that the locals have access to that. Um, and like, like I said, to give you an example, I'm, I'm just really concerned with contracts that the city gives the Tivoli um, that stifles access to local people to that. And so um, I'm gonna support resolutions that says, listen, if they can enjoy it, we better damn make sure that we're enjoying it just as much as they are and we're benefiting from it. And then I've got, I've got one last specific question for you. Chattanooga government still has a reputation of being kind of a good old boys club. You know, it's a closed network of, of people who are making these decisions. And a lot of citizens don't feel like they're being actively involved or actively listened to in the you know, legislative process. Sure. So how do you think the city government can um, address that issue and make sure that all Chattanoogans feel like they're being equitably represented? So I love, I love how people use the good old boys as a, which I'm not saying you are. And so you're, you know, your listeners, I don't, I really don't even know what your audience base is, but we basically have a problem of, you know, where it's just not the good old boy system. It's, it's white males, um, white male privilege who have, are so used to being in positions of power um, that when other people are being included or invited to the table, it intimidates them because they're, and, and it could be the vice versa. If there were black people and then and white people started coming to the table, you know, people become intimidated. And then that's when people start doing creative barriers, you know, because they don't want you to come in and uh, disrupt or to stop what they've been able to enjoy for centuries, right? Um, so that scares people. We have to start using, we have to, we really have to dismantle these systems. Um, and when I say these systems, I'm talking about the police department. I'm talking about who sits on different city boards. Mm -hmm. um, if it's all, I tell people, this is my saying, if it's all white, it's not right. Like, you know, it, and that's, you know, and I know that sounds racist, but I'm like, no, it's not. It's equity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's not supposed to be all black. It's not supposed to be all Latino, mm -hmm. but historically it has always been all white. And that is the good old boy system. And we have to confront it for what it is. And it is racial inequality. The good old boy system is part of the systemic uh, root of racism. <laughs> 
And so I just want to be clear that when we talk about the good old boy system in Chattanooga, you're really dismantling, here we go, white supremacy, okay? <laughs> uh, we're dismantling white supremacy in governing. Uh, we're dismantling white supremacy in education, you know, where we've created a prison to pipeline system. We're dismantling white supremacy in the police department, where you have police officers who are culturally insensitive to black people. And so when they come encounter or we're in communities that are over police, uh, they don't understand. And so their first reaction, knee jerk reaction is to shoot. You know what I'm saying? And so these are all white supremacist um, issues. And in order to dismantle it, uh, we have to have more people like me at the table, more brown people, uh, more gay people, uh, more Muslim people, more Jewish people more transgender people. And I know that makes people uncomfortable. And I tell people, if you're uncomfortable, then we're doing something right. Because right now, if you're comfortable in the way things are happening, we are not, we are not a thriving community. Because until everyone has equal access to live in a community where all of their needs are being met, we live in a country that says you should have the pursuit of happiness. Not everybody wants you to be in pursuit of anything. Happiness, wealth, prosperity, nothing. And so you have people like me who understand the uh, policy uh, initiatives that will dismantle that system. Um, and I will be that city councilman. And, I, and if I were white, I tell people, I would be that city councilman. This is not a black or white thing. This is a righteous thing. Opportunity for all. And, it, and if we have to dismantle the good old boy system, Hey, let's do it. And, it, and it's going to take time. Well, great. That's all the questions that I have, but I do want to make sure, you know, this interview is supposed to be a sounding board for, for you to talk to your voters, essentially. So yeah. I want to make sure that there's no other issues. You know, is there another issue that you're passionate about that's a core component of your platform that you'd like to tell your voters about? You know, I don't know if you went to my website, but um, you definitely touched on all of my key issues. There's one issue that I want people to be aware of. And that's the notion that the city of Chattanooga is not in the education business. Um, I cannot tell you how everything rises in a community. Everything rises and falls with education, including your property value. And we have to, we may not be in the education business as far as who operates and who sends the money to Hamilton County Department of Education, but we have to be in the education conversation because the children, these are, these are neighborhoods. These schools are in city council districts. The schools that are struggling are in city council districts. And so we have to equip these family units who live in our neighborhoods. Like, you know, I didn't know you were my neighbor, but hey neighbor. Um, we have to equip these families with opportunities and education to make sure they have access to prosperity. And we have to be in that conversation. And city council has to be a part of the community school model. It takes a community. You know what I'm saying? And so right now the city only invests in pre-K. You can't do that. I tell people, you got to invest in all the grades. I, I said, how many pre-K, how many little kindergartens do you see out here shooting people? Not many. I, I mean, maybe, I don't know, but I'm just saying, I have not seen one. These are middle and high school children who are being recruited in gangs because we're not affording them the, the, uh, the quality of education that they need to survive. And so you know what they do? Mm -hmm. They go to the streets. 
If we or if we're not doing it in the classroom, they're going to do it in the streets. And the problem with the streets is, is that they're not going to produce productive citizens. Mm-hmm. All they're going to do is create a prison to pipe a school to a school a pipeline from school to prison. And that's what I'm going to be dedicated to doing is to making sure that no, we don't collect property tax to fund the school system, but there are some social programs um, that we can invest in. You know, I tell people if we can pay $300,000 to install art, um, I can pay $300,000 to tutor some black kids in math so they can graduate from Brainerd High School. And we can do that at the city level. And so that's the only thing um, I want to stress is that the city, we may not be in the education business, but I'm going to make sure we get put back in the education conversation. Right. Well, great. I want to thank you for your time again. Uh, where yeah. can where can your voters find out more about you? Yeah, so go to my website at DennisClark.org. You can email me at info at DennisClark.org or you can email a call. We've got a, a, a cell phone that I use just for my campaign is 423-504-3402. Again, that number is 423-504-3402. I like to have conversations. You can text me. But again, you can go to my website at DennisClark.org. And it's a pretty interactive website. So you can reach me there easily as well. Great. Again, Dennis Clark running for District 5. Thank you for your time. Good luck in March. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics, or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.